When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hey, everybody. This is Prescott Niles. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is Tony Franklin here. Listening to Play That Rock and Roll. Keep rocking with Joe. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joseph K. And like my old theme song says, just call me Joe. That's right, I said old theme song. And that's because. We have a new theme song. That's right, a new piece of intro music. That piece of music was created by a guy named Michael Schicciano, otherwise known as Skitch. You can find him on Twitter, at Skitch Music. That's at S-K-I-T-C-H Music. You should definitely give him a follow. A number of years ago, he created a theme song for a YouTube series called Movie Nights with Allison Pregler. I watched that show from time to time, and the intro music he made for her was incredible. So when I decided I wanted an original piece of music to be the intro theme for this show, he was the only guy for the job. And I reached out to him earlier this year, and he very graciously took on the project and gave us just a great piece of music. So I'm really happy about this. I hope you enjoy it. I want to thank Michael for his work on this, and I definitely want to encourage you to follow him over at Skitch Music on Twitter. Now, if you follow us on social media, you would have seen by now that I've also unveiled the show's new logo. Yes, we have a new logo as well. That artwork was done by a good friend of mine, a guy named John Alvarez, who is not only a dear friend, but a fantastic artist. He does graphic design. He does comics. Just like with Skitch, there was only one guy I wanted for this job. I wanted John to make us a great logo for the show, and he did. So I'm very appreciative to him for his time. So likewise, if uh, you enjoy art or if you need some graphic design done yourself, please check out my good buddy on Twitter, at Doc Krog, which is a great Twitter handle, by the way. That's at D-O-C... C-R-O-G. Find him on Twitter. Another new thing today. A new format. (laughs) Or at least a slightly updated format. Uh, I'm recording this podcast today solo, but I'm rolling out a new format uh, when I do these solo shows. From here on out, when I record a solo show, I'm going to be joined by a guest. Although not while I'm recording it. 
my guest is not with me here in the studio today. <laughs> no, instead, it's going to be like this. When I do a solo episode in which I look at an artist's full life and career, I am going to bring on a special guest expert to give some insight into specific elements or events in that artist's life or discography. For instance, today we are talking about Ronnie Spector from the Renettes. Ronnie died earlier this year, so this episode is very much in tribute to her and a celebration of her amazing life and musical output. And our guest today is a guy named Jordan Runtog. Now, Jordan is a music journalist and a fellow podcaster, although he operates at a much higher level than I do. <laughs> he works for iHeartMedia. He's had articles published in People Magazine and Rolling Stone and other publications. This guy has hosted two podcasts. Uh, the one he hosts now is called Too Much Information, and the podcast I discovered him through was called Rivals. That was a stellar podcast for any music fans. If you like music, you should really know the, the podcast rivals. And what he's doing on Too Much Information now is just as good as rivals, but it's a bigger scope than just music. They talk about many things in pop culture, movies, TV shows, just various pop culture events and ephemera. But they do also talk about music as well. So I would definitely encourage you to check that show out. The reason Jordan is joining me today specifically is because in the last couple of years, he actually met and interviewed Ronnie Spector a couple of times, and those interviews were published in People Magazine. And she really enjoyed those interviews that he did with her. They stayed in touch after the, the projects were complete, and he went to her celebration of life ceremony that went on earlier this year. So I wanted him to be a guest on the show today because he's not only a super fan of Ronnie, but he got a chance to get to know her, and I think he would have some insight that would be valuable here today. So I hope you enjoy that. So this is how he's going to join us. I recorded a conversation with him separately already, and I'm going to post that conversation in full on our YouTube channel. But as far as this podcast episode goes, I'm going to be dropping in clips from our conversation in at relevant points. So when we get to a part of Ronnie's life that Jordan has some particular insight on, I will drop those clips in at that point. So hopefully that will add a little more depth to what we're doing here today. So if you enjoy this episode, once you're done listening to it, please let us know. It was very enjoyable speaking to Jordan, and I look forward to talking to other journalists and podcasters and maybe even artists themselves may join us for this sort of thing in the future. Hopefully Jordan will come back for a future episode. We'll see what happens. But if you have any feedback about this show in general, now would be the perfect time to let me know what you think. Okay. I've gone on enough. We've got so much going on. New intro song, new logo, new format. New dress, new hat. Brand new Okay, okay, not all that. That's enough, Patty. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny. I'm playing that clip. I'm going to talk about Patty LaBelle uh, a little bit later in this episode, but not quite yet. So let's get on to the story at hand. Let's talk about Ronnie Spector. Ronnie was born Veronica Yvette Greenfield on August 10th, 
1943. She's mixed race. Her mother was African-American and Cherokee, and her father was of Irish descent. And if you read her book or see her in interviews, when she talks about uh, her ethnic background, she refers to herself as a half-breed, which I will say is not (laughs) a politically correct term so much anymore. But when she was born in those days, that is how people talked. In fact, uh, Cher had a hit song with that as the title. Because I think Cher is of mixed race. I I, I could be wrong. But anyway, uh, don't let that shock you if you see her in an interview. That's really just how people talked back in those years. Anyway, she formed a vocal trio at a very young age with her older sister, Estelle Bennett, and their cousin, Nedra Talley. And because they were so young, the events that they would play were things like bar mitzvahs and sock hops, local social events, not exactly clubs. But they had bigger aspirations. They had dreams to break through into the pop music scene. Now, you got to remember, the music scene I'm referring to here is pre-Beatles, early 60s. So... Let's listen to our first clip with Jordan. He's going to tell us about what the pop music scene of the early 60s was like and how Ronnie would fit into that scene in those early years. Yeah, a lot of people kind of view this as sort of like the the dark ages after the uh, the first wave of rock heroes had all either died or gone to prison or got into the army uh, and pre all the excitement of the Beatles and the British invasion. And it, it's kind of oversimplification to say that this was the era of of teen idols, kind of like, OK, industry people in the up in the Brill building up in upper Manhattan that crack the code on what the kids are listening to. So we're going to make these prepackaged people like Fabian or Frankie Avalon and people like that. Rock and roll had lost its edge. It's a cliche, but that's kind of where I, it's it, it's true. And then I think Ronnie really uh, brought a lot about that back. I mean, even with her look, she would say, you know, we we took it from the street to the stage, and I was wearing what the kids were wearing. Because if you look at girl groups, were a big sound in the early sixties. You know, I've got the um, the Shirelles had a hit with Carol King's "We Love Me Tomorrow," and they wore these big ball gowns i mean it looks like something you'd see at like the grand old opry or something now he's huge prom dresses basically and ronnie was like no it's not really our thing i mean she, when they started having their dresses made i think she had her mom or her somebody in her family make them she said no can you make them tight because we like to dance that's kind of our thing and so that is you know everyone calls it the queen of rock and roll that's sort of why i mean she was bringing some of that uh, mentality back to the stage in this era of Fabian and Frankie and Annette. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So Ronnie and the girls recorded their first couple of songs on a very small label called Colpix. Colpix was a record label in which anybody could come in and record a couple of songs, you know, for friends and family. And sometimes they'd get wider circulation, but for the most part, nobody was really listening to these records. And when I say records, I don't mean like albums. I mean, strictly singles. And Ronnie and the girls released their first single, which was called I Want a Boy in August 1961. So here, take a listen to this. Keep in mind, they were not calling themselves the Renettes at this point. This was actually credited as Ronnie and the Relatives. <laughs> oh man, that is an all-time terrible name for a group. <laughs> Talk about not quite ready for prime time. But still a good vocal performance. That said, Colpix released a, a couple of other singles with them over the next two years, but it should come as no surprise that nothing sold. Colpix was not a major player. So the trio actually found a job sort of by accident working as dancers at a place called the Peppermint Lounge in 1961. And through this job, they became friends with Joey D and the Starlighters, which was a pop group at the time. And how this would go was that Joey D and the Starlighters would play the Peppermint Lounge and Ronnie and the girls would dance on the stage. They'd be the backup dancers. And if Joey D and the Starlighters sounds familiar, they're most famous for a song called Peppermint Twist because this was at a time when every other song was the something twist. <laughs> And of those twist songs, the Peppermint Twist is not a particularly good one. Anyway, even though they were having a good time working as dancers, the girls still wanted to punch through in the recording industry. They wanted to be a musical act. And they thought one of the ways to do this would be to work with a 
good producer. And one of the big name producers of that era was a guy named Phil Spector. So Phil Spector is an evil and horrible man, but he is inseparable from Ronnie's story. So we are going to talk about him quite a bit, and it won't take long for you to realize uh, why I describe him as such. But before we get to that, let's talk about how they started working with him in the first place, because this is crazy to me. So in early 1963, Ronnie's sister Estelle called Phil Spector's office, talked to his secretary, somehow got Phil on the phone, and then just asked to audition for him. And that was it. It was just that simple. That's how you could get gigs back then. When people say it was a simpler time, <laughs> I guess in the music industry, I, I guess it was. But anyway, the reason they wanted to work with Phil is that at this point, he was a proven hit maker. In fact, he had just recently scored a big number one hit with a song called He's a Rebel by The Crystals in November 1962. So here, take a listen to that. He's a rebel cause he never ever does what he should do just because he It's not a stretch to think that the Renettes heard this song by the Crystals and thought, oh, the Crystals are a girl group. So are we. He had a big hit with them. Well, why couldn't he do that for us? Right? So they auditioned for Phil, and Phil was very impressed with Ronnie's vocals. In fact, he was kind of obsessed with her, and he wanted to sign her immediately, but Ronnie's mother would not give permission unless Phil signed the other two girls as well. This is just a reminder of how young these girls were at this point, their mother had to be present for almost all of this stuff. And she was not going to give Ronnie up without the other girls being part of the deal. Phil agreed to the deal, to his credit, and got to work on writing their first song, which he promised them would be a big hit. And they released that song called Be My Baby as a single in July 1963. As promised, it was an immediate smash hit, topping out at number two on the charts. Take a listen to this. If you like 60s music, you should know this song. It's, it, it's one of the quintessential tracks from not only that era, but also that whole girl group subgenre. And it made them overnight sensations. So keep in mind, this is still pre-Beatles. We're at a time where a lot of the pop music from this era really has not stood the test of time, but Be My Baby absolutely has. So let's cut back to Jordan, and he'll tell us why Be My Baby has stood the test of time when so much of the other music of this era just really didn't. Well, I mean, three components. One, I think it's a beautifully written song. I mean, that's kind of yeah. the, the easy one. Uh, Ronnie's voice, really, I mean, it, it, it's the, the perfect blend of this kind of schoolgirl vulnerability and street sass and attitude it's like it's it, it's so wonderful it's so unique uh there's really never been anyone who sounded like her before or since i mean just in that voice 
is bewitching. It was this incredibly powerful but vulnerable voice. And so I think that was a huge component of it, even though I think the song, it was a hit song anyway. And then you got to talk about Phil Spector. You got to talk about the wall of sound. I mean, what, you know, say what you will about how he was as a human being. He was a genius. You know, the wall of sound production. I mean, nothing sounded like that. Also, I need to say, when I use phrases like girl group or teen group, these are not disrespectful terms. It's accurate. They were literally teenage girls when recording much of their discography. And also their target audience was other teenagers. That's why groups like the Renettes are called girl groups or teen groups. So the songs were written to reflect that target demo. And this is how you get songs with lyrics like, the best part of breaking up is making up. <laughs> I mean, it's a little childish because it's designed for teenagers. And it might be tempting to look down on that, but you should really take it with the context it deserves. And you also got to remember, a lot of bands were like this. The Beatles were like this when they first got started. And it's not any different from how a lot of artists are even today. When artists start very young, their target demo are they're contemporaries, people of their same age, and they eventually grow up and make more adult-oriented music. Miley Cyrus is a great example of this. She started out making music primarily for kids. Now she makes music for adults. But the music she made for kids still means a lot to the people who were kids when they were listening to her. Anyway, Be My Baby was an absolute star-making performance for Ronnie, and it was also another highlight for Phil Spector's legacy. Now, here's an interesting story. During part of a tour to promote the single, Phil sent the Renettes out on the road, but without Ronnie. Instead, her cousin Elaine filled in for her. Ronnie was held back so she could record their next single, and then... People like Darlene Love, Cher, and Sonny Bono filled in on backing vocals in place of the other two Renettes. This is just a good example of how Phil worked and also of how he saw the other two girls, Estelle and Nedra, as fairly disposable and not important. Because Phil didn't give a shit about touring. Phil was all about the recording process. He saw Ronnie as the important one. So he was fine with having the other girls go out on the road to tour and make a little money. But as far as the art, he prioritized Ronnie because she had that unique voice. Now, another reason that he was working this way is because Phil and Ronnie were also falling in love with each other. Now, if you read Ronnie's book, at first, this comes across as a charming love story. But as you read deeper into Ronnie's book, it becomes very tragic because Phil is a monster. And like many monsters, he did not reveal himself as such until uh, she was in very deep with him. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But the dynamic of the Renettes was changing, even in relation with their producer, because Phil and Ronnie were in a relationship together. They were still working together. In fact, their next big project 
was called A Christmas Gift for You. This was released in 1963. It was a compilation album with a number of artists, and the Renettes recorded three songs for it. And it may surprise you, but it was not a hit at the time. It was not a hit because it was released on the very same day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. So the nation was in a very dark place at the time, and upbeat, happy Christmas music was really not what the public was interested in buying at that time. Now, in the years since, this album has become a beloved classic. In fact, in 2019, Rolling Stone ranked it as number one on their 25 Greatest Christmas Albums of All Time list. And on this record, the Renettes sang Frosty the Snowman, Sleigh Ride, and I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Let's take a listen to Sleigh Ride. Just see the sleigh bell jingling, ring, jingle, jingling, too. Ring, 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 lovely weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Yeah, to me, this is the definitive vocal version of the song. I think there's an instrumental version that is also very iconic, but Ronnie's voice delivers on this song better than anybody who's ever attempted to record it. And I would argue that their versions of the other two songs are the best versions of those songs as well. The bottom line here is this is just about the greatest Christmas album ever made. And if you like Christmas music, this one better be in your collection. And the reason it's so good is, is not just the vocal talent from all the artists here. It's also because it's like the apex of Phil's production technique, the wall of sound. Now, if you're talking about Phil Spector, you're going to hear the phrase wall of sound. Now, I'm not a production expert, so I am going to have Jordan explain to us in layman's terms what we mean when we say the phrase wall of sound. It was a, a production technique that just basically oversaturate the tape it's essentially a pop orchestra you would have a massive group of players playing all at once which is not done now i mean today when you record a song you go track by track and record every instrument but this is back in the two or four track era when they, they had to record a full what was effectively an orchestra at once and he would have you know four pianists five guitarists all the like all playing at once in this tiny little room sound bouncing everywhere and he would rehearse them for hours so by the time he got the take that he wanted everybody was just like they it, it was like breaking them down so that there was no individuality in the playing it was yeah. just like there i mean you know and that was the sound he wanted he just wanted everything to sound the same he didn't want any virtuosity he wanted just this bombastic wagnerian sound and then he would uh, the, the crucial element was the uh, echo chamber at gold star studios where he liked to work which added just just drenched it with echo and reverb and make it made it sound even thicker and this was back in the time when uh recordings were mostly released in in mono which i mean not to get too technical but it it, it made it even sound even more um just like a, a giant concentrated block of sound your wall of sound i mean it was just it, it, in stereo you can kind of space out the the recording of the instruments in the sonic field with this because it was mono it just all hit you at once coming through one speaker so christmas gift for you was actually the first album that the renettes were featured on because the renettes through their 60s run were really a singles group 
which was quite common for that era. They did release two albums, but those records were basically just compilations of tracks that they had previously recorded as singles. And those two albums had very similar titles, so similar that they'd be very confusing. And those titles are, first, Presenting the Fabulous Renettes featuring Veronica. That was released in 1964. And then the next album was called The Renettes featuring Veronica. That was released in 1965. Now, Veronica is Ronnie's birth name, but everybody calls her Ronnie. Everybody except Phil Spector. Phil called her Veronica, and that's why that name is on those album titles. Now, the Renettes did have a few more mid-level hits through 1964 and 1965. One of the more famous ones is called Walking in the Rain. So here, take a listen to that. And I'll be certain he's my god This is a nice song, and it was, like I said, a a mid-level hit. Not a timeless classic like Be My Baby, but still a song that that many people would recognize and like today. I mention this in this way because Phil, on the other hand, at the same time, scored another era-defining number one smash hit with a different group when he produced the song You've Lost That Lovin' Feelin' by the Righteous Brothers in February 1965. So the Renette's success was starting to stall a little bit, but Phil's was not. And that's because Phil had started to slowly and quietly tank the Renette's career. Phil and Ronnie were in love, but Phil was an extremely manipulative and controlling person. And I would really encourage you to read Ronnie's memoirs, but I will warn you that it is absolutely heartbreaking to read about her experience and see how effective Phil was at isolating and manipulating her. And this was when she was still even able to record. But eventually, this would escalate to full-on emotional abuse. So here's why. Phil was extremely paranoid that Ronnie's success in popularity would outshine his, which would, one, make her harder for him to control... And two, he was worried that he would just lose her, that she would become too big for him to keep around. So, as their producer, he used a number of different tactics to slow their release schedule to almost nothing. They were still putting out good songs, but it wasn't necessarily the best material he had in front of him. And the tracks were being put out inconsistently, and he also shelved a tremendous amount of music that Ronnie felt strongly about. Now, around the same time, the Renettes went on tour in England, and they had a chance to meet the Beatles. And Ronnie became friends with the Beatles, uh, John Lennon in particular. John had a crush on Ronnie and pursued her romantically, but she ultimately did not want to leave Phil. But they did remain friends. But because of that friendship, in 1966, the Beatles specifically requested the Renettes to open for them during their 66 tour. Now, at this point, Beatlemania had landed, and this absolutely terrified Phil, because he thought Ronnie would run off with John, and he refused to let her go. But he also saw it as an opportunity for the band, so he did send the Renettes. But again, he sent Ronnie's cousin Elaine in her place. 
This, of course, annoyed the Beatles greatly, and also it was a huge disappointment for Ronnie, who, one, loved working and wanted to tour, and, and two, obviously was friends with all the guys in the Beatles and wanted to be a part of those shows. But in retrospect, that particular tour was insane and chaotic, and ultimately not a lot of fun for really anybody, including the Beatles. See, the thing is, is that Beatlemania is aptly named. It was manic. It was insane. It caused riots and genuinely dangerous situations. Ronnie tells a particularly scary story about being trapped in a limo at a Beatles concert at Shea Stadium because the rabid Beatles fans recognized her and thought she might have one of the Beatles in the limo with her. On top of that, if you saw a Beatles concert back in those years, the screaming of the crowd overwhelmed the sound from the stage so much so that you wouldn't hear any of the music. This hysteria that was around these shows, I think, really ruined the experience for almost everybody involved. So, you know, Ronnie says this in her book. At the end of the day, in hindsight, she's not actually all that disappointed she didn't get to tour with the Beatles. In 1966, Phil recorded the track River Deep Mountain High with Ike and Tina Turner. He was expecting this to be his biggest hit yet, but it totally flopped. And this caused him to fall into a very deep depression. And he decided to take a hiatus from producing altogether. Instead, he would focus on his relationship with Ronnie, and those two would get married in 1968. This would mark the end of the original Renettes. But Ronnie's troubles were only just beginning. At this point, we are going to take a break, and we are going to go to our first segment, which is called Yesterday's News. This takes a look back at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock, and we'll talk about that for a few moments, and then we'll get back to the main story. So, let's open up our classic rock newspaper and look at Yesterday's News. Not quite yesterday, but just about... How about this for a headline? Bomb threat forces Patti LaBelle to cut Milwaukee concerts short. Yes, this is kind of scary. Patti LaBelle was scheduled to play a concert at the Riverside Theater in Milwaukee on Saturday, December 10th. After performing four songs, she was rushed off stage by security. And immediately after, the band fled the stage. I'm not reading an article, by the way. I'm recounting my memory. Because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm breaking this news story. <laughs> yeah, this was crazy. I'm kidding around about it, but this is the craziest thing that's ever happened to me at a concert. We went to see Patti LaBelle. She was supposed to be doing a Christmas-themed show. She came on stage, did four songs, and I remember seeing these guys come from the side of the stage. Obviously security. They grabbed her, caught her totally by surprise they rush her off stage and then like a beat later the rest of the band just flees the stage right and about 30 seconds after that someone from the venue comes on stage and tells us that the whole crowd needs to evacuate the building immediately because there had been a bomb threat so everybody made it out of the building okay and no explosives were found after the police searched the building but i will tell you for a few minutes it was a little scary there for me, was a good opportunity to remember how important things like knowing where the exits in a venue are. 
this is always something that I make a note of whenever I go to shows because I like to be among the first people out. Even when a show goes just perfectly fine, I like to beat the crowd to my car <laughs> so I can try to beat traffic. But in a situation like this, I was among the first couple of people out of the building after this bomb threat because I knew where the exits are. I'm not going to get too deep into this. I posted a video on my YouTube channel with a full recap of the events on that night. I would really encourage you to check it out because, yes, bomb threats are not typically credible. It still was uh, a scary situation, and the important thing was that nobody got hurt, but I cover a lot of different things on that video, so I would encourage you to check it out. Let's turn over to the finance section of our classic rock newspaper here. Neil, Sean, and Jonathan Kane battle over Journey credit card. Oh, my God. Once again, Journey's corporate boardroom inner band drama has spilled out into public. On November 21st, it was reported that Neil Sean had filed a lawsuit against keyboardist Jonathan Kane, claiming that Kane had quote, improperly restricted Neil from accessing Journey's American Express card. He claims that he had been denied access to one of the band's major financial accounts. So besides being able to make payments with the account itself, he says he can't even review payments made and received through the account. He also claims that, quote, Kane is interfering with Journey, refusing to respond to booking opportunities, blocking payment to band members, crew, and vendors, refusing to execute necessary operating documents. Kane has further refused to deal with critical, time-sensitive touring contracts for Journey's 2023 tour and ensure payment for band members and crew, who Kane contends are, quote, non-essential. Later that same day, Neil's wife, Michaela, posted more details on Facebook saying, quote, John Kane and Paula White added her name, Paula White, on the Journey Bank account behind Neil Sean's back and violated his directive as the president and founder of Journey against Neil's wishes and per the court agreement. The bank just informed that they did this in 2020. She then added, Let's see what other drama, malice, harm with intent John Kane and Paula White try to do to attempt to harm Neil, Sean, and Journey. Paula White threatened a lawsuit to Steve Lukather for having a comment about her. <laughs> I should note, you might remember, this is the same Paula White that was President Trump's spiritual advisor, as her day job is a televangelist. And apparently she wanted to sue Steve Lukather from Toto about something he said about her. Well, why is this a big deal? Well, Steve Lukather and Toto toured with Journey in 2022 and are scheduled to again in 2023. By the way, I did a little looking and the comment that she was probably upset by was an interview he did in 2020 in which he referred to her as, quote, the crazy woman. <laughs> oh boy uh, but because this is Journey all of this is coming out in public on November 22nd Jonathan Kane responded via a statement saying quote 
I am forced to publicly respond now to Neil's malicious lies and personal attacks on my family and I in an effort to garner public support for his ill-conceived lawsuit, a lawsuit that has absolutely no merit. What he lacks, and what he is really seeking, is the ability to increase his spending limits. Since Neil decided to publicize what is going on, I can tell you that we will present the evidence to the court that shows that Neil has been under tremendous financial pressure as a result of his as a result of his excessive spending and extravagant lifestyle, which led him to running up enormous personal charges on the band's credit card account. When efforts were made to limit his use of the card to legitimate band expenses, Neil unfortunately decided to attack me rather than trying to get his reckless spending under control. My God, he sounds like Congress. Neil then responded to this on Twitter saying, quote, it's all a rouge to deflect what my lawsuit's really about. I've not been able to get full access to our company's records. That goes back to 1998. Amex told me I've been blocked from the beginning by John since 1998. So a preliminary hearing for all of this has been set for March 3rd. Only one problem. Journey's 2023 tour kicks off on January 27th. <laughs> oh, man. And neither one of these guys has quit the band. But on Twitter, Neil confirmed saying, quote, I won't be canceling. <laughs> oh, boy. Journey has really taken up the mantle of, of rock star drama, of, of keeping that alive. <laughs> Honestly, even more so than Fleetwood Mac at this point. But hey, how are they going to resolve this? This is not a case of, like, a singer running off with his guitar player's girlfriend. You know, something like that might break up a band. But at this point, Journey is not really a band anymore. They are a brand, okay? And disputes over money is the only thing that will break up a brand. Also, you got to remember, Ross Valori and Steve Smith uh, attempted that weird hostile takeover of Journey back in 2020, and that totally failed, and they were fired for it. At the time, according to Neil's lawyers, they were fired because they, quote, destroyed the chemistry, cohesion, and rapport necessary for the band to play together. Journey can only tour successfully and succeed creatively if it is united and the band members trust one another. Well, the obvious question here is how are Neil and Jonathan ever supposed to trust each other again after this? So needless to say, some big changes to Journey are coming soon. Uh, It's a developing story, so stay tuned. And the only thing I'll say on the matter is What happens if, like, both of these guys are right? What happens if Jonathan Cain has been blocking Neil from using the card, but Neil has also been trying to use the card to fund his extravagant lifestyle? These are things that can be happening at the same time here. So I guess we'll see. They got their first court date in March, so stay tuned. And finally, we will... Turn the page to the obituary section. Sadly, Christine McVie from Fleetwood Mac passes away at age 79. Christine passed away on November 30th, 2022. 
She is one of the core members of Fleetwood Mac, lead vocalist on many of their most iconic songs, and it should go without saying that she was every bit as important for that group's success as uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham were. I will say that I saw her perform with Fleetwood Mac in 2015, and that was a much better show than when I saw Fleetwood Mac without her in 2009. And it's not just me saying that. There was a huge difference in the crowd size of those shows as well. The 2015 show was packed to the gills, and the 2009 show, oh, there's a lot of empty seats. She has so many highlights. But for me, I have to point to the Tango in the Night album. I think she steals the show here. She outshines the rest of the band with incredible tracks like Little Lies Everywhere. And a personal favorite of mine, Isn't It Midnight? So, in memory of Christine McVie, I'll play us out with Isn't It Midnight? Back to Ronnie Spector. So, Ronnie and Phil got married, and these are the dark years of Ronnie's life, because Phil had manipulated Ronnie into total dependency on him, and he kept her cooped up in their house in California, and straight up forbade her from socializing altogether. She wasn't even supposed to be talking to the cleaning staff and the cooking staff in the house. And because of this, she fell into a very deep depression and developed a a drinking habit. Ronnie spent her mid-twenties as more of a prisoner of Phil's than a wife. And when things got particularly bad behind him, one of the things he would do was use her career as like a carrot on the end of a stick to sort of retain control over her. For example, he let her release a single in 1969, and it was called You Came, You Saw, and You Conquered. Take a listen to that. So this did not chart. By this point, the whole girl group trend had largely gone out of fashion. And look at the title of that song. You came, you saw, you conquered. What sort of message was Phil not so subtly trying to send directly to Ronnie through that? Pretty dark stuff. But another example of how Phil toyed with her is that he started working with the Beatles in 1970, and he got them to sign Ronnie to Apple Records. And while this was happening, she was absolutely over the moon. She thought her music career was going to come rushing back. She was going to have this big hit. She was going to record something that the Beatles had wrote for her. And sure enough, Phil got George Harrison to write a song for her. It was called Try Some, Buy Some. And Ronnie hated it. (laughs) As did Phil. They released it, though, and it flopped. And when I say Phil hated it, he hated the song. He did not hate the effect it had. Because he said, well, look, we tried. We put out some music and it didn't sell. So maybe we have to take more time off. We need to, you know, go back to the house and rethink some things. You know, he, w- he would use music to lure Ronnie into doing what he wanted. But he did not give her the material to succeed with. You got to keep in mind, this was around the same time he produced My Sweet Lord with George and Instant Karma with John Lennon. So there was good material around these guys, but 
Ronnie just wasn't getting any of it. At the end of the day, Phil sabotaged Ronnie's career. He tanked her release schedule after the Renats had scored a few hits in the 60s, but then he broke up the band, and then he took her out of the game entirely. And this dark era of Ronnie's life continued until she was finally able to escape Phil's grasp in June 1972. And when I say escape, I mean literal escape. She ran bare feet out of the house and jumped into a car with her mother to get away from Phil. And when she recounts this story in her book, it is a genuinely tense moment. You know, it's not a symbolic escape. It was a literal escape. He didn't know what she was up to. If he did, he would have stopped her and it it could have gone very bad. Now out of Phil's grasp, Ronnie wanted to revive her career and she thought the best way to do that was to get the Renettes back together. But at this point, so much time had passed that Nedra and Estelle simply didn't want to do it. They had their own lives going on. So Ronnie had to carry on with different backup singers. They recorded a couple of singles for a label called Buddha Records in 1973 and 74, but to no success. Here, take a listen to one of those. In her memoirs, she referred to this single as, quote, awful, (laughs) and she called the next single that they released, quote, terrible. So things were not going well for her at this point. These singles were maybe a bit more modern, but certainly not enough to punch through. And without much surprise, the label dropped her after these singles tanked. So in order just to make a living, Ronnie and this new Renettes group had to tour as a nostalgia act. And she was 30. She was 30 and she was on the oldies circuit. That's not great for the old self-esteem. And her personal problems weren't really getting any better. She was still drinking a lot. And she was going through a divorce with Phil. And that legal case took years. And he would make these threatening phone calls and, you know, threaten people that would work with her. So she was really in a bad way. Ultimately, she decided she was not going to be able to succeed as the Renettes, so she decided she would bring the band to a proper end in 1974 and try to start afresh as a solo artist. Now, as luck would have it, she would get a boost for her solo career. Her solo career would be launched in part by Stevie Van Zandt from the E Street Band. So the story here is that Stevie and Ronnie had briefly dated in the early 70s, and they reconnected in 1976, And Stevie convinced her to sing on a song with Southside Johnny and the Ashbury Jukes called You Mean So Much to Me. Now, this song was actually written by Bruce Springsteen. Now, I can't speak too much about it because I don't know a whole lot about Southside Johnny. I mean, the guy definitely has a great voice, but uh, at the risk of making a lot of people mad, he just struck me as like a pet project of Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Van Zandt. I didn't really get the appeal of the guy, and I've never really explored his discography too much. But this little blip in their career is pretty interesting. Ronnie actually toured with the Ashbury Jukes for a little while, and it was probably a lot of fun, but ultimately it didn't do a whole lot for her career-wise. Stevie Van Zandt did, however, come up with another song for her to sing, and this one would not be a duet. This would be a solo track for her. It was called Say Goodbye to Hollywood, And it was written by another big fan of hers, a guy
guy you might know named Billy Joel. Because <laughs> now we're in this next generation of rock stars, and people like Bruce Springsteen and Stevie Van Zandt and Billy Joel grew up as huge Ronnie Spector fans. And now that she was sort of this musical free agent, they wanted to be the ones to get her back in the spotlight. And Ronnie loved this song, and she thought it was perfect for her. Say Goodbye to Hollywood, it, it fit her life. It, it was like sort of a kiss-off to Phil Spector and California and that world that had been her prison for the last couple of years. She was free, and she was happy to say goodbye to Hollywood. And she recorded it with the E Street Band, who were like the hottest group in the world at this point. So, written by Billy Joel, recorded along with uh, the E Street Band, lyrics that she believed wholeheartedly in. It's just so perfect. Take a listen. nice yeah well unfortunately it was a little too perfect and it was a flop and because it flopped the label declined to produce a full proper record with her so a couple years later she tried to release of all things a country single she recorded a song called it's a heartache and obviously that also flopped because she's not really a country artist but um, i guess it was worth a shot you might recognize that song though because it later became a hit for bonnie tyler Ronnie wouldn't have an opportunity to release a full, proper album until 1980, when she released a record called Siren. For this project, she had been recruited by a punk rock producer, and the goal here was to produce a very modern album. Now, Ronnie wasn't really a punk fan, but she did like the music that was presented to her for this project. I pulled a quote from her book in regards to this album that I think you might get a kick out of. This is what she says about the record. Quote, I can actually get sexually aroused when I'm really feeling a song, and I got hot all the time when I recorded Siren. <laughs> That's funny! <laughs> and good for her. And also, this is not a bad record. It opens with Ramones cover, so, I mean, there, there, there's some punk rock credentials going on here. Take a listen. This is her version of Here Today, Gone Tomorrow, originally recorded by the Ramones. But I told you why we just can't make it. I want you still, but just can't take it. The time has come, we ought to break it. Someone has to pay the There's another cool song on here called Happy Birthday Rock and Roll. The lyrics include a lot of references to classic rock and roll tracks, and it even samples Be My Baby. And for me, I like songs like this. Uh, music about music really seems to click with me. I always get a kick out of that kind of thing, so I like that track. But despite that, uh, this album was absolutely not a hit, and it just goes on this big pile of failed comebacks for Ronnie. And this was really starting to take its toll on her. She was starting to become very uh, dejected by all of these comeback attempts just coming up short. So she decided to take some time off uh, from her music career so she could start a family. She got married uh, and she wanted to have kids. Now, a couple of years later, 
she would get a phone call out of the blue from one of the hottest pop rock stars of the time, Eddie Money. Eddie Money had a song called Take Me Home Tonight, and it was written as a duet. And the lyrics of the song went, just like Ronnie sang, Be My Baby, right? So the lyrics were written as a tribute to Ronnie Spector, but for whatever reason, Eddie's producer wanted to use Martha Davis from the motels on the female vocal part. And Eddie, thankfully, had the response of, why? Why wouldn't we just get Ronnie herself? Like Bruce Springsteen and John Lennon and Billy Joel and all these guys I mentioned earlier, Eddie Money was a big Renettes fan, and he saw this as a chance to work with her. So when Eddie called her, she was very happy about this because she was a fan of his. She really liked his song, Two Tickets to Paradise, and she had been out of the game for a little while, so she saw this as an opportunity to put herself out there again, see what could happen. And I don't know if either one of them was expecting this, but the end result is one of the best duets of the 1980s. This is a terrific song, and also an iconic music video, just a brilliantly shot clip. So finally, in 1986, Ronnie had her big comeback hit. So my question is, why did Take Me Home Tonight succeed when all these previous attempts had failed? Uh, I put that question to Jordan, and here's his response. She sort of intimated to me when I was lucky enough to speak to her that there was some fear of reprisal from Phil, and and there was some people who you know they would help her to a point but so i'm not sure how much of it was was any kind of you know fear of phil specter versus just the change in uh in music i mean music is still not great to women past a certain age you know i mean how do you think it would have been in the in the mid 70s like i I don't know i mean i'm sure people were thrilled to see her people that grew up with her but i think it was um hard for even somebody who had the full backing of a a, a corporation of a label of a figure like phil specter to reposition her in that decade and that time trying to really do it on her own when she was calling in favors not to say they weren't well-deserved favors but calling in favors from like murray the k who was the the famous new york dj and he he would kind of put her on package tours and stuff in the mid 60s or mid 70s that were basically like golden oldies type shows that would be put on at madison square garden i I think at that point she was almost just trying to eke out a living yeah and wasn't really at a point where she was trying to make a massive creative reinvention i think it it just it was there was really no one in her corner in a major way that was able to get her to that place yet and i think that the reason that the eddie money song hit was because it was it was almost like a proto sample i mean it was like yeah she was an early hook girl kind of i mean in a way uh and i i think it was such a, a, a an easy kind of obvious way to update her sound by taking what everyone knew her for and bring it with this uh big haired bum i don't know much about any money he's pa- i stopped listening to music after 1975 so any money <laughs> aside from that the ronnie Spector song i don't yeah. know too much of it 
Coming off the success of Take Me Home Tonight, Ronnie got herself another record deal. So she was able to put out her second ever solo record called Unfinished Business in May 1987. Both she and the record label wanted to capitalize on the fact that she was back on the charts. And Eddie Money would return the favor by appearing on a duet with her as the lead-off single for that album. That song was called Who Can Sleep? Now, Eddie does not appear in the music video for this song, and I can't say I blame him, and I also can't say that his presence would have helped. I like this record, but I'm not crazy about this single. I'm not surprised that this was not a hit. It it was another flop, by the way. This record did not chart, and I think that's largely because of the single. I think they were trying a little too hard to repeat the success of Take Me Home Tonight, but I think this is a good album. It has a contemporary late 80s studio production, which I like. I think it complements Ronnie's vocals very well. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. It is a cover she did of Elvis's hit, Burn in Love. It is very different than his original, but take a listen. Your kisses Look, I don't know what to tell you. I like this. (laughs) I think this sounds really cool. And if you're going to cover a song, you do something like this. You make it different. It's a good record, just a questionable pick for the lead-off single. But unfortunately, it was not a big hit. And it was also the last time that Ronnie would attempt to produce contemporary pop music. In 1990, Ronnie published her memoirs, Be My Baby, How I Survived, Mascara, Miniskirts, and Madness, or My Life as a Fabulous Ronette. I have read a tremendous amount of rock and roll biographies and memoirs, and I will tell you that this is one of the absolute best ones I've ever read. I would really encourage you to read this. A big part of why I'm doing this podcast today is because I read this book and was just inspired by what a crazy and chaotic life that Ronnie survived. It's at times a very dark story, but in the end, it's a very triumphant and inspiring story. So I would really encourage you to check out this book. Also, I think we're at another good time for a break. So we're going to move on to a segment called Back in Time, where we look at some of the biggest musical events from the past 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. But before we get to the break, one last note about Phil Spector. The big revelation of Ronnie's book is what a monster Phil was. But 1990 was a very different time for society than what it is today. So I asked Jordan if he thought this book was actually the turning point of the public perception on Phil, or if that did not come until later. So take a listen to Jordan, and then we're going to go back in time. Sadly, I don't think that happened until the murder. I, I yeah. really don't. I um after Ronnie's death, I I spoke to her husband about the reissue of her book that she spent the last yeah. weeks of her life finalizing. Uh and he was talking to me about the book and and how it was received when it first came out. And to hear him say it and I I I don't know I wasn't there personally so I don't know, but to hear him say it 
the general consensus was, oh, bitter ex-wife. Yeah. Or at least yeah. if, if, if that wasn't the general consensus, there was certainly a sizable population, you know, amount of readers who came away with that, which, um, you know, is obviously, you know, people love the crazy genius. I think that's such a trope that yeah. they're fascinated by it. And, you know, I mean, it's, you forget, especially when they're violent and abusive like that too, that it actually does have real world consequences. I think that it took a really extreme situation. I mean, like the, the Harvey Weinstein thing. I think yeah. that it, yeah. I, I think that they're, they're there. I mean, he was powerful. So I think that maybe that people don't want to necessarily come out and, and be too explicit about what happened to them. But yeah, these stories were in, in rock and roll legend for, for years before. And I think people just kind of expected it. That is the sweet sound of Maneater by Hall and Oates. It's the number one hit on Billboard 40 years ago on December 18th, 1982. According to Daryl Hall, this song originated as something that John Oates had come up with, of all people, Edgar Winter. <laughs> it was one of six number one hits that the duo had, and it speaks to what an incredibly successful partnership these guys had. So, again, it's always so weird to me that Daryl resents the fact that these two guys are associated with each other. I mean, you have a partner, so it's a little different than- I don't have a partner. You're not- I think John Oates is my partner. You still tour together, don't you? Yeah, but he's not my partner. Well, you're partner. He's my business partner. He's oh, not geez, my well, look what I've stumbled into here. He's, I, not, I, he's I, not my creative partner. Just around that same time, another big success came out. On November 30th, 1982, Michael Jackson releases Thriller, which is still the greatest selling album of all time. It sold some 50 million copies. <laughs> and one of the singles on that record is, of course, Beat It, which features Eddie Van Halen on guitar. So to celebrate that solo, here is a clip from a 2013 interview with Eddie in which he talks about recording the solo. So Michael Jackson rings up and says, Eddie, Eddie, you're the best guitarist in the world. Can you play on my song Beat It? It's a smash hit around the world well, and you get zero dollars. Well, I didn't ask for anything. Uh, it was about 20 minutes out of my life. Quincy had called me up and, and asked me if I wanted to do it. And the honest God truth, uh, uh, the, the band's policy was, you know, we don't do things outside of the band at the time. And uh, everybody's out of town, so I had no one to ask. <laughs> and I swear to God, I figured, who's going to know if I play on this Black Kids record? <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, the funniest thing of all was I, I actually rearranged the song. The section they wanted me to solo over it was just, you know, there's no chord changes underneath it. So I had to rearrange the song. And then Michael came in and I said, oh, I hope you don't mind. I changed your song. And he listens and he goes, no, I, I really like that high fast stuff you do. <laughs> and uh, that was it. So I'm well aware that Thriller does not really fall under the 
genre of classic rock, but anytime Eddie Van Halen is involved with the project, I'm going to pay attention. So we are honoring Eddie's contributions to this incredible album today. And one last thing I have, here is the isolated guitar track for Eddie's solo on Beat It. Just awesome. All right, let's move ahead 10 years. December 3rd, 1992, Bill Wyman announces his departure from the Rolling Stones. This came a few years after Bill had married 18-year-old Mandy Smith, who Bill had started dating when she was just 14. Dating, that's a cute word for it. Not relevant to why he left the Stones, but absolutely necessary to bring up anytime he is mentioned. Anyway, his resignation came as a surprise to the rest of the band, as there was no big dramatic reason for him to leave. In January 1993, he kept it simple, saying, quote, I really don't want to do it anymore. Eventually, he would reunite with the Stones for a couple of shows during their 2012 50 and Counting tour. But in 2013, Rolling Stones drummer Charlie Watts said it had been, quote, a shame that he had left in 1992 because, quote, he missed out on a very lucrative period in our existence, and he didn't really reap the rewards that we do now. So, if you're like me, and you think that Pill is a particularly vile guy, at least we can say that he lost out on a lot of money. <laughs> at least there's that. All right, moving ahead another 10 years. December 22nd, 2002, Joe Strummer of The Clash dies of a congenital heart failure at age 50. I think The Clash represent the absolute best of the punk rock genre, so in memory of Joe, to play us out with one of his songs, London Calling. The ice is coming, the sun's zooming in, meltdown expected, the wheat is going in, engines stuck on him, but I have no fear, cause London is drowning I Final segment. Let's get this wrapped up here. Ronnie released a five-song EP called She Talks to Rainbows in 1999. This includes two covers of Ramon's songs. One, She Talks to Rainbows, obviously, and another track called Bye Bye Baby, which she did as a duet with Joey Ramone. And that's because this EP was produced by Joey Ramone. Joey was a close friend of Ronnie's, and they made this little project together, which got very good reviews. She released another five-song EP in 2003 called Something's Gonna Happen. These were not contemporary tracks recorded in 2003. These were actually demos that were recorded it all the way back in 1989, but held in legal limbo until 2003 uh, because the record company that owned them had declared bankruptcy, and it was kind of a mess. But she would release her third full solo album, called The Last of the Rockstars in 2006. And her vocals here are as strong as ever. And one of the highlights of this album is a duet she did with Keith Richards on a song called Work Out Fine. Remember, remember what? They used to call you Dapper Dan. Oh yeah, those were good old days. The thriller, the killer, honey. the ever-ready loving man. 
guess me? If you couldn't guess, she was also very close friends with Keith Richards. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy to think of all the famous friends she has, which is just awesome. She actually lived very close to Keith. I think they lived in the same town, and they spent a lot of time together. And just a year after she put this record out, it was Keith Richards who introduced the Renettes when they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was in 2007. Now, I guess there was some talk of inducting them all the way back in, like, 1994. But Phil Spector got involved and insisted they shouldn't be put in. And the cowardly rock hall, of course, backed down. Now, I find that disgraceful. But when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, not the slightest bit surprising. But at least the Renettes were eventually inducted. Ronnie's speech is really charming and funny, very human. She's got a whole speech written out. She's got her notes with her. It's a fun watch. You should check it out on YouTube if you can. A little while later, she released her fourth and final album called English Heart in 2016. This was a covers record, and many of the songs here were originally made famous by British Invasion bands. And this, to me, is just a beautiful tribute to her era. These are the songs that were on the charts when she was on the charts. Her vocals are as strong as ever, which is just amazing given how deep into her career she was at this point. And to show an example of that here is her version of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, which was originally made famous by the animals, but here's Ronnie singing it. That's really good. This is good as ever. Estelle Bennett, Ronnie's sister, passed away on February 11th, 2009. Nedra Talley, their cousin, is still alive. On April 13th, 2009, Phil Spector was found guilty of murder for killing actress Lana Clarkson in 2003. He was sentenced to 19 years in jail. And in January 2021, he died in a prison hospital, reportedly from COVID-19. Ronnie outlived the bastard. Good for her. Phil was a monster. The murder case of Lana Clarkson is too big of a subject to discuss here, so I will just leave it at this. The stories that Ronnie tells about Phil in her book are harrowing. And it's scary to think what could have happened to her had she not ran out of that house on the day that she did in June 1972. It is a credit to her strength that she was able to endure and survive the abuse that he put her through. And for what it's worth, just to remind you of the type of character Phil was, in his last years of freedom, before going to jail, Phil spent a good chunk of his time in interviews bashing Tina Turner, of all people, for publishing her memoirs and telling her stories about how bad Ike had abused her. Monsters stick together. Eddie Money passed away on September 13th, 2019. Ronnie and him had stayed friends, and she posted a beautiful tribute to him on Facebook saying, quote, Eddie's voice was soulful rock and roll. I just loved it. That's really why we got together in the first place. I loved his voice. He loved mine. He introduced me to a whole new generation of fans in the 1980s with our recording and video of Take Me Home Tonight. Working in the studio with Eddie was way different from any other sessions I've been involved in. 
He had a crazy great sense of humor and was a real character with the kind of positive vibe that we don't see today, but we sure could use more of. Eddie brought joy to a lot of people with his music and performing, and he never stopped. If you want to learn more about Eddie Money, I did a podcast episode about him a while back. You can find that in our podcast feed. Now, I never got a chance to see Ronnie Spector play in concert, but I did see Eddie Money play at the Waukesha County Fair back in 2014, and of course he included Take Me Home Tonight in the set list. And no disrespect to Eddie at all, but that song is not nearly as good without her. As I said earlier, Ronnie Spector passed away on January 12th, 2022, at age 78. And we're going to cut back to Jordan here, because this is why I wanted to have him on the show. Jordan got a chance to be with Ronnie a number of times. He got a chance to know what she was like in person, and here's how he describes her. The best. I mean, of course, <laughs> of course, John Lennon, David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Brian Wilson, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, Stevie Van Zandt fall in love with her. Like, of course. Yeah. It was just, oh, yeah. I mean, she was just the most warm, genuine, funny, one of the most special people I've ever interviewed. It was great. It was I, I've interviewed her a number of times. The, the the main one that I remember was when I actually went up to where she lived in Connecticut and we met at one of her, her favorite restaurants nearby, his little steakhouse. And we just spent the afternoon hours in a um in just a booth in the steakhouse off in the corner. And she was hysterical. I mean, she was every inch a star, but not in a not in a grand way, in a very sweet, funny way. She kept her sunglasses on indoors oh. the whole time. Full face of makeup, big yeah. red lipstick, hair exactly as you'd want, you know, one of the Ronettes to have, all big bouffant uh beehive. Oh, she was wonderful. And it was it was so funny because I I think I'm allowed to <laughs> say this. I we'd been talking about doing like a big sit-down interview with her for a couple months with speaking with her her publicist mm -hmm. is a, a lovely guy and he kind of kept saying that please don't like like don't go in on the phil stuff like mm -hmm. it's very traumatic for her like mm -hmm. this is like and i was like yeah of course like i you know why would i i do don't especially want to dredge that stuff up like yeah. i'm a serious fan like i love her and I love her music and I think she's the best and I I just am frankly I'm just I'll I'll write whatever she says I'm just happy to be with her so I go up there and I brought my 45s my old Ronettes 45s from the oh. 60s just to show like no for real like yeah. I like this is I love your music I have it all this is how I like to listen to it and she's going through them and she flipped it to the back and she said, oh, yeah, I see all the B-sides. Yeah, the B-sides were like, he used to stick like like random people's names as like the co-writers on those songs to give people he owed money to. Phil uh -huh. filled it. Oh, he was such a snake. And literally, like, as soon as she's off and running about what a, what a snake Phil was for like 45 minutes. And I'm looking at the, the, the PR person being like, I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Right, right. And so she, um, I mean, the point of this was yeah. that she was not for all the things that happened to her and i really want this to come through she was not a traumatized victim by any stretch she was yeah. proud she was strong she was very proud of what she'd been through yeah as proud of escaping phil's house 
barefoot with no money in 1972 yeah. as she was as she was hitting you know number two or whatever it was would be my baby i like the, that she survived that and she really spent the latter few decades of her life wanting to help people i i i, I yeah. she said that her husband said that and i saw her do that with her show and with this book yeah she um was everything you would ever want her to be. She yeah. was a, a really awesome, awesome woman. That is just so great to hear. That's why I wanted to bring Jordan on. That's why I just I just needed to know that about Ronnie. And I'm sure everyone who met her over the years would say the same. Because here's the thing. Ronnie is an undeniable talent, both in vocal abilities and also stage presence. But her career was really wrecked by Phil Spector. She had the talent to be as big and successful as a group like, say, the Supremes. But Phil cut it short and took her almost entirely out of the game when she was in the prime of her life. But despite that, the Renettes still hold up. They are a great group, and they are an important group, and they are certainly one of the best girl groups of the mid-60s. So if you like that genre or are interested in that genre, you should definitely start with them. And also, her 80s comeback with Eddie Money is freaking awesome. To me, it is one of the coolest comebacks of all those 60s artists that had revivals in the 80s. And even though it wasn't a hit, I like Ronnie's 80s album, Unfinished Business. I think there's some good tracks there. But she's got great music all through her career. So before we get out of here, here's Jordan one more time telling me about his favorite songs from Ronnie, setting aside her golden years of the mid-60s, the stuff she produced with Phil. I'm really glad you asked that because I really enjoy, and not many people, not to sound like Michael Caine, not many people know this, yeah. uh, there's stuff <laughs> that she did before Phil as the Ronettes oh. on Cole Picks. I think it's Cole Picks Records. Yeah. Producer named Stu, I'm blanking on his last name, I'm sorry. Uh, and there's some fun early stuff a song called good girls that's the stuff i used to play out because i didn't want to give phil any extra shine so i usually <laughs> whenever i'd play out and i'd take a video of people dancing i would always play one of those because i you know um yeah. yeah there and there's an album a compilation album and i i wish i'd brushed up on this but it exists of all the pre phil specter run at stuff oh yeah it, the cold picks years that's on yeah our is, okay is on our website yeah yeah that stuff's great i mean it, it doesn't have the Phil Spector wall of sound, you know, sure. bombast stuff, but um, it's good. It, it sounds a lot like the, the kind of girl group stuff that was happening earlier in the sixties, like the, like the Shirelles. That's really fun. Yeah. Good girls is a great, it's a great, very track. cool. That, that was one of her favorites too, that she always loved. I need to recommend and also cite be my baby, how I survived mascara, miniskirts, and madness by Ronnie Spector. And like I was saying earlier, one of the best rock memoirs I've ever read. I also need to uh, give a tip of the hat to the multiple articles in People magazine about Ronnie Spector that were written by today's guest, Jordan Runtog. The links to those articles will be in the description. You can check those out. And while we're at it, I need to give a very special thank you to Jordan for his insight, conversation, and time. I really appreciate his presence here. I'm so happy with how this uh, worked out. And just on a personal level, you're just about the nicest guy in the world. He was a real joy to talk to. And you can check out our full conversation on the YouTube page. So if you want to hear even more 
of his thoughts on Ronnie Spector, make sure you go check that out. And if you're not familiar with Jordan, like I was saying earlier, he does another podcast called Too Much Information with his friend Alex Heigl, which I highly recommend. So real quick, here's Jordan talking about what he does on Too Much Information. Oh, TMI. I mean, it's, it's aptly named, let me put it that way. <laughs> Too much information. Um, my friend and I spent many years writing listicles for various websites. And, you know, a lot of writers kind of look down their nose at that because it's, you know, it's the, it's the lowest, barely journalism. It's just, mm -hmm. just facts in a list. We always loved it because we're research nerds. We love to learn about stuff. I mean, for me, the best part of the whole gig is you get paid to learn and share that with others that's pretty yeah. cool so we and it's also it's 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 celebratory you know so much spite and bile on the internet like we would do oh yeah you know fun facts about movies and tv shows and music that that people loved and got excited about so that was always cool so my dream was to do a show that was basically an audio listicle where every episode we take a different movie a different tv show or a different album or song and just Talk about all the little known behind the scenes stories and details that went into the making of it. And it's been fun. We do it twice a week. We launched in April. And yeah, every episode is is just one topic. We did we had one out today on Home Alone. We've done a lot of Christmas oh, okay. ones lately. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, we we've done so many. A lot of like 90s nostalgia type stuff, Legends of the Hidden Temple and Nickelodeon <laughs> kinds of things, and Full House <laughs> and uh and yeah, classic movies too. We've done Cool Hand Luke and yeah. um I'm trying to think about, I think we have Aladdin coming up and yeah, it's it's really fun. And you know, because I, I mean the, the best part about it for me, and I hope other people get this too, is that you really makes you kind of appreciate these classics that we just kind of don't even see anymore because they've just become so part of our dna almost that you know you you revisit them when you know kind of what it went into making them i think it leads i hope it leads to a new kind of appreciation form so that's really fun and i i host it with my friend alex heigl who's a um a, a brilliant writer and musician and he works now out at the uh, san francisco conservatory and he's like a classically trained musician so when we talk about music stuff like he always adds a really interesting insight into yeah. music theory and all this the stuff that i'm kind of hopeless about so it's it's fun it's fun yeah, awesome. Absolutely go check them out. I really enjoy that show. And again, hopefully Jordan will come back uh, for a later episode down the road. We'll see how it goes. Now, as far as upcoming stuff on this show, as uh, I announced previously, my old buddy Chris Beretta and I will be kicking off our new songwriter series. We finished the Dylan Through the Decades stuff. Now we are moving on to another iconic songwriter, and this time we are going to do a multi-part series about Warren Zevon. So be sure to keep your eyes open for that. Otherwise, I am planning on doing solo episodes with some special guests, just like the one we did today, but I will be doing it them about bands like Wang Chung and Molly Hatchet. So those will be coming down the pipe. And I'm not done with interviews. I'll have some more interviews in 2023, but I am still putting those together, and I can't say who they will be just yet. But you will find out as we go on. Once again, our new intro song was written and recorded by Michael Schicciano. Our new podcast artwork was done by my good buddy John Alvarez. You should check them both out on Twitter. And that's all I got. So thank you very much for listening. To play us out, here's the track Ronnie recorded all the way back in 1980. Happy birthday, rock and roll. So
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 